0: Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, before I begin, before I get to the sermon, I there are a few orders of business that I, I would like to address. First of all, Brother Doug, thank you for the invitation to be here. It is a High privilege and a great honor to to proclaim the word of God with like-minded brother And I certainly appreciate the mission behind what you do in this gathering I appreciate the work that you and AJ and all those involved at uh, Particular Baptist Heritage books are involved in appreciate the ministry that you are driving in India. Thank you, brother um, It's good to be amongst the like-minded I can tell you, as a church planner in southern Indiana, in Scottsburg, um, as a Reformed Baptist, we felt like we were on an island. So it is good to gather in Indianapolis and to see that within the state there are other Reformed Baptists out there. I do, before I begin, want to recommend to you three. ...works that were tremendously helpful to me, that I do continually find tremendously helpful with regards to the study of our Great Confession. The first is a modern exposition of the 1689 by Dr. Sam Waldron. I believe that's the fifth edition. I'm not sure if there's a more recent edition. This one just came out. It is Rob Ventura as its general editor. It is a new exposition of the London Baptist Confession of Faith... And this, of course, is by Dr. James Renahan to the Judicious and Impartial Reader. It is a two-volume set, the first volume being on the first London Baptist Confession of Faith. They are highly recommended to you if you want to study a bit more of this beloved confession. Thirdly, as we gather to study this confession, I have a loving, gentle, yet... Bold admonition for us Because I feel that The tendency is When we gather to do something like this Or we go to a conference Just because we are gathering in fellowship On a day that is not The Lord's day It's not Sunday This isn't our local home church Just because of that We may enter into this place Casually So I'm just going to challenge you lovingly to examine yourself and how you walked through those doors this morning. Did you walk through those doors this morning with the same reverence, with the same awe, with the same fear and trepidation, with the same trembling that you walk into those doors of your local home church on the Lord's day? And if you didn't, I want us to examine as to why that may be the case. Why are we here? Of course, to to study this great confession from the saints of old. Of course, to fellowship with like-minded brethren and to edify the saints, to proclaim and to hear the word of God. Well, I submit to you when we do all of those things, regardless of the day, regardless of the location, we gather to commune with the one true living, thrice holy God. Amen. 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 So with that being said, I think we all should sit up a little straighter, tighten our ties, and not approach this casually. Because there's nothing casual about coming into the presence of the thrice holy God. When you cross that threshold, you cross from the secular into the sacred. You cross from the common into the uncommon. You cross from the unclean into the clean. You cross from the profane into the holy. You cross from darkness into light. This is holy ground. And with that being said, we would do well to figuratively and perhaps literally Take off our sandals because this is holy ground. Amen? Now with that being said, the fourth thing that I want to tell you as an order of business before I even begin the sermon is that I, I grew up in East Central Indiana. I spent just a, a portion of my childhood in, in Central Oklahoma. Moved back and finished growing up in East Central Indiana. I've spent my entire adult life until the last five years in north central indiana so by all virtue i am i'm a northern boy but i'm there's so much about the south that i do love and i love the southern homes and one thing i love about southern homes is that they're big and you go to Georgia and you look at the big southern homes you know what they have big porches and i have a real affinity and appreciation for a big porch because if you look at what happens there there's life that occurs on that porch. And the event that happens on that porch, the event, the life that takes place, that unfolds on that porch, it draws you into the life of the house, right? Now, if it's a good porch, that porch is so secured to the foundation that the foundation and the porch are often considered one in the same unit. And that house has to be built on a solid rock foundation. I appreciate that, this about big homes and big porches in the, in the South. Those porches surround those big homes, and they, and they encompass the home. That being said, the confession is a big house, lots of chapters, lots of rooms. We, sh- we would do well to, to get directive for our personal lives and for the life of the church from the house of the confession. But if that confession be not built on a solid rock foundation, if that confession is not encompassed with a big porch of Scripture, that confession is meaningless and it will not stand. So with that being said, I know that I'm here to talk about chapter 4 of the confession, but I'll tell you in my study there is so much that I could not get away from in just the first four words of Scripture. And so, like a big porch with a big house, this sermon is going to have a big porch that deals just with Scripture before we even get to the house of the confession. Now, we will take a quick tour of the confession. We'll we'll dip into the living room of of paragraph one and, and maybe to the dining room of paragraph two and we'll take a peek into the kitchen of paragraph three. But again, those paragraphs mean nothing unless they are built upon and encompassed by the big porch of Scripture. So we're going to spend a great deal of our time in that. And that may be frustrating to you personally and, and maybe even frustrating to the mission behind our gathering here today. And if it is, I want to direct you to the very first chapter of our confession. We know what it's said there, don't we? The confession bows the knee to Scripture. Amen. And that's all I aim to do and with this sermon. Now, if you would, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. It should be towards the beginning. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. I want you to go back with me to the very beginning. I want you to go back with me to the very first words as they appear in Scripture, in Genesis 1.1. Are you there? I'm going to start reading. And when I stop reading, I want you to think in your mind, or even audibly say, if you feel so compelled, the very next word. Okay? So you're going to fill in the blank with the very next word. Are you Ready? In the beginning, God. God. In the beginning, God. Have you ever really stopped to think, and I mean really, really think, about just the ramifications of that? In the beginning, God. How many times have you read Genesis 1-1? Ten? Ten? 50, 70, 100 times? Have you read it a 1,000 times? Of all the times that you've read Genesis 1-1, how many of those times have you ever read the first four words of Scripture and then come to a screeching halt at that word, God? Have you ever done that? Have you ever read that verse that way? I would imagine that nearly every single one of us In here, as we've read Genesis 1-1, nearly every single time that we've read it, we've read it something like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Or something very similar to that, right? Isn't that the way we read Genesis 1-1? I want you to think about this. This is very important. It, It may seem like, you may be thinking already, okay, yeah, we get it, move on. But listen, this is the very first four words in Scripture. This is very important. And if you're like me, you believe that the Word of God is inspired. Amen? And if you're like me, you not only believe that, but you believe that every single word of the Word of God is inspired. And I believe that the very first words of the Bible were carefully God-breathed for a very specific purpose, and that purpose is this, to teach us something about God just in those very first four words, to teach us something about who God is. So I'm going to ask you to hang with me while I labor to make this point. Again, big porch, big house. How many times have you ever read those very first four words in all of Scripture and come to that word God and then stopped to have a Selah moment at the word God? A Selah moment? A Selah moment? What's this guy talking about? Some of you are like, get this guy out from behind the pulpit. A Selah, yes, a Selah moment. Amen. You know that word Selah that is written so often in the Psalms? And oftentimes we read that word, and we're not really quite sure what we're supposed to do with it or even what it really means. And so we just say the word, and we immediately go on to the very next verse, right? That's the word I'm talking about, Selah. Do you know what it means? It's thought to mean a a couple of things. It's a musical and liturgical term that is inserted in a work to draw attention to, to focus our attention on, or to magnify the meaning of. That's what Selah does. It calls for an audience to stop and intently consider the significance of what has just been said. The word Selah is a verb. It's not a noun. It it calls for action. It commands, uh, it's a command that calls for voices to raise and praise. It calls for instruments to play much louder. It is a literary accentuation to emphasize. It's a musical crescendo to heighten the senses. It is the peak of the mountain that has been climbed, and there upon that peak, your climb comes to a screeching halt. As you take a moment to, to pause and, and to look upon the ground that has been, just been covered, that you might fully appreciate the great heights you have just ascended. That is what it means to say la. And most of the times, brothers, sisters, be honest, when you read that word in the psalm, we just blow right past it. As if it, we're not even there. And we do not do what it instructs us to do. Have you been guilty of that? So let me ask you. When you read the Psalms and you come across that word, Selah, do you, do you take the time to stop and think about what you just read? Or do you immediately move on to the next verse for the sake of time? Brothers, do we or do we not believe that this word in every single word is inspired? Because if we do believe that this word and every single word is indeed inspired, do you know what we will do when we see that word Selah? We will Selah. We'll come to a screeching halt. We will stop. We will pause. We will take a moment to stand upon a great mountain peak, a great Everest of biblical truth to consider and appreciate the significance of what we just read. Are you with me? This is what it means to say law. This is what I refer to when I speak of a Selah moment. And so what I'm suggesting to you is this, that we have such awe and reverence and trembling and trepidation and fear for God that when we in our study see that word God, we will in that fear of God, have a Selah moment. Even if Selah's not written there. He demands that type of reaction. So let me ask you, how many times out of the tens, hundreds, or thousands of times that you have read Genesis 1-1, have you ever read the very first four words of the Bible and had a Selah moment when you come to the word God? I'm going to guess the number of times you've done that for most of us, if not for all of us, is exactly zero. Right? This is how we should read Genesis 1. If we study the Word of God with in mind who God is, when we come to that word God, we will say law. In the beginning. God. Wow. Whoa. In the beginning? God? Look at this. He was there in the beginning. Pastor Steve, do you see brother? You gotta come see this. Do you see what I see? In the beginning, God. Aaron Andrews, come up here. I want you to see what I'm seeing right here in these four words. Look at this view. From this mountaintop, in the beginning, God, the heights, they're breathtaking, the glory. They are awesome. The grace of God to bring me up to the heights of this mountain peak so that I may see what he has to show me right here in the very first four words of scripture. How wonderful, how marvelous, how amazing. In the beginning, God, law. Have you ever read Genesis 1-1 that way? We don't read it that way. Instead, you know what we do? And I I really want you to think about this. We, in our reading, in our study of this God-breathed word, we don't read it like, in the beginning, God, and Selah. We read it like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So think about what we do when we do that. We come to the word God... And we blow right past God, don't we? We come to the word God and we pass the person of God. We come to the word God and we move on past who God is and we rush on to what God does for us. Think about that. Brethren, let us be careful. Let us be very careful students of the word of God. Let us be good workmen of the word. Let us take our time to capture all that the Lord has for us in his word so that we can fully appreciate how the confession applies his word to our lives and to the life of the church. Let us stop to enjoy and revel in the big life of the big porch of scripture so that we can more fully appreciate the life of lived in the house of the confession. Amen? Because how we study, listen to this, how we study the Word of God is indicative of what we think of God. And if we're willing in our study of the Word of God to blow right past the person of God, if we're willing in our study to blow right past who God is so that we can hurry up and get to what God does for us, then we might just be no better than those of the prosperity gospel who love God for what they can get out of God rather than loving God for who God is. Do you hear me? Don't you ever trade what God does for you for who God is. Don't do that. Did I say that backwards? You know what I mean. God is not a sugar daddy. He's God. He's God. He's God. Dear brethren, should we not slow down? Should we not slow down, especially in our study of the word, so that we don't blow right past who God is? Let me lovingly admonish us all, brothers, myself included, to slow down in our study of the word so that we can have a Selah moment the next time we read Genesis 1-1, or any verse for that matter, where God is written. When we see God in the text, let us slow down so that we can stand in awe upon the great Everest of the biblical truth of the person of God. Let us come to a screeching halt. Let us stop, let us pause for a moment and consider and appreciate the great heights we have just ascended in the text which teaches us who God is. Because if we do this, if we take the time to say law, we will see so much about who God is right here in the very first four words of sacred scripture. Look at it. Genesis 1.1, look at it. In the beginning... God, Selah. I'm going to humbly ask you to stand of at attention. As we read this God-breathed word, we're going to read Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And then we're going to read Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. And as you make your way to your feet, I want to remind you that what you hold, what we read, what we hear, what we proclaim is the inspired, inerrant errant. Immutable, infallible, imperishable, the perspicuous, the authoritative and sufficient, God-breathed Word of God. Again, we're going to read Genesis 1.1 and then Genesis 1.31. Hear the Word of the Lord What is it is written, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 31. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we ask that in our time together, as we've made our way through the front porch and we are drawn further into the house, that you help us through your spirit to handle your word rightly, that we are careful students of the word, that we take our time with it to proclaim it, that we are edified by it, that Christ is exalted and you are glorified in it. We ask that you do these things for our good and for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now I want to immediately draw your attention back to the text. Genesis one in the beginning, God. Selah. Amen? Amen? Let us pause right there, because if we are workmen of the Word of God, we will see a lesson in theology proper in these four words. Now, by no means am I claiming we are able to get everything we need to know about God in these first four words. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, if we don't slow down, there is so much here that we are taught in these four words that we will miss. So let us be careful, workmen, of the word. In the beginning, God. That means that before the beginning, before there was anything, before there was anyone, there was God. And the ramification of that truth is this, that there is God, and then there's everything else. That there is God, and then there is Everyone else. That means that God is totally other than, that He is holy. Holiness doesn't only mean what we're taught elsewhere in Scripture that He's without spot, He's without stain, He's without wrinkle or blemish. He is holy, He is all those things. Holiness doesn't only mean that He is moral perfection. That is holiness. He is those things. But in addition to all that, here in the very first four words of Scripture, what we will miss if we don't slow down is that before the beginning, there was God. Which means that He is totally other than. Wow. The glory. But beloved, He's not only that. We also see in the first four words of the Bible that God is triune. When you look at that Hebrew word Elohim, that is the plural form of a singular form of the word God. Mm. We see a triune God in that word Elohim. In the beginning, God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, we have to heed to Calvin's warning to, to not... Uh, Misrepresent this word and and think that the Holy Spirit will send or proceed from himself because we know he's there in verse 2 As our brother said the Holy Spirit proceeds from the father the Holy Spirit proceeds from the son But here in this word Elohim We see that there's God who's a plurality of person in one God. He's triune in the beginning God Wow Elohim is used almost every single time in every single verse Of the scripture, I I think it's it's thirty-two or thirty-three times in thirty-two verses. You'd have to go back and count. But the message is constant there: that God is the one true living triune Creator God. In verse five, we see the first person singular personal pronoun "he," that tells us that God is one. In verse twenty-six, we see the first person plural personal pronouns of "us" and "our." That tells us that God is a plurality of persons. We see the triune God in the first four words of sacred Scripture. In the beginning, God. Totally other than. And triune. The one true living triune creator, God. Wow. Selah. He's not only that. He's also Eternal. We see the eternality of God in that word God in the first four words of sacred scripture. Why? Because in the beginning, God. That means that before there was a beginning, there was God. That means he is outside of time. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is who was, who is, and is to come. Come soon, Lord Jesus. The Father is referred to as the Ancient of Days and that attribute that distinguishes him as the Ancient of Days is an attribute shared by both the Father and the the Son and the Spirit. Wow. The eternality of God in the first four words. He's also self-sufficient. What was there before the beginning? God and nothing else. We refer to this as the aseity of God. Ah, meaning from, and say, meaning self. He needs nothing. Right. There was a popular song from a popular group, I dare not say the name of, several years ago, and a line in that song said something to this effect. You didn't want heaven without us. As if God needed us before he wanted heaven. God needs nothing. We see the aseity of God in the first four words of sacred Scripture. Wow! Selah! Have you thought about all this when you've read the first four words of Scripture or do you blow right past who God is? Inherent in God's triune nature, we see that God is relational. God the Father loves God the Son. And he loves God the Spirit. God the Son loves God the Father and God the Spirit. And God the Spirit loves God the Father and God the Son. There's a relational aspect of God. And what's more, he actually condescends Mm. to have relationship with those whom he has created. He doesn't have to do that. He's not obligated to do that. He does that because he's a God of relation. And we see this implied in the first four words as we continue reading and the verses that follow. What else can we draw from this word God? If we're careful students of our Bible, if we're good workmen of the word, if we will have a Selah moment and pay to God the reverence and the fear and the trembling that he so rightly deserves and we stop to consider what has just been said about God, what we will see is that he's also omnipotent. We read in the beginning God and you and I look around and we see all sorts of creation And that means that God had the power to create. He had all power. He had no help in creation. It was Him. That is the same God who rose Christ from the dead. That is the same God who gives the Holy Spirit in you as a seal and guarantee that you would will and act according to His good purpose. An omnipotent, loving, relational, eternal, triune creator God in the beginning. God, not only did he have the power to create, but he had to have the knowledge to create. In the beginning, God, he's omniscient. There was a plan to create. He had the knowledge to create, and then he exercises the wisdom to apply that knowledge with his sovereign hand and his providential hand that he works out in his creation. God, creates, God is a God of order, and he created creation in a very orderly fashion. He created his creation with a directive and instruction in ordering its steps in operation. God is omnipotent and he's omni, uh, omniscient. He's also omnipresent. He was there in the beginning. We read elsewhere in scripture. We know that uh, the psalmist writes that if he makes his bed in shale, that he is there. We know that we live and move and have our being in Him. In the beginning, God. And by virtue of Him being the Creator, He has the power, He has the knowledge and the wisdom, He has the presence to create. That means He's in control, He's sovereign. Just as the potter exercises control over the clay with his sovereign hand, so does God the Creator rule, reign, and control over all that He has created. Do you see this in just the very first four words of Scripture? Have you ever been intentional to take your time to stop and to think about who God is when we read Genesis 1-1? Or do we blow right past the person of God to what God does? Brothers and sisters, let us slow down. Look at it again. In the beginning, God, Selah. Take a look around and think about all these things that are communicated just in those four words, things that we've just articulated. And then there's much more. Be intentional to consider the significance of what you just read. Wow. Whoa. Look at this. This is exciting. I want to show Doug. I want to show Steve. I want to show Stanley and Brady. In the beginning, God. The grace of God to bring me to the heights of this mountain peak so that I may see what he has to show me right here in the first four words of Scripture. How wonderful, marvelous, and amazing. In the beginning, God. Selah. There's so much theology proper in these first four words of the Bible if we just say la, stop, and consider to appreciate the great heights of the biblical truth that it proclaims. Now, it is by no accident that right there out of the gates of Scripture, we as the creatures are immediately placed in a proper perspective with regards to our Creator. There is God, and then there's everyone else. There is God, and then there is everything else. And if we miss this assessment of our proper position as God's created people before God the creator, then we will neither grasp the hold of the biblical truths proclaimed in scripture, nor will we learn to appreciate how the 1689 confession applies those truths to the life of the church and to our lives as believers. If we miss this assessment of our proper position as God's created people before God the creator, then we will walk right past the big porch and into the house whose foundation is built on sinking sand. That house will not stand. So then, now that we've been intentional to take the time to see who God is in these first four words of sacred scripture, let us move on to what God does in his work of creation. We are now going to go to our beloved confession, the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, so that we can confess the truths the word of God proclaims of creation first of all remind yourself of what chapter 1 and 3 cover chapter 1 covers the uh, it's of the holy scriptures where we've already talked about the confession bows the knee to sacred scripture in two words it's sola scriptura Chapter 2 is of the Holy Trinity, the person of the triune God. Chapter 3 is of God's decrees, his sovereign plan, and how he works that out through creation with his providential hand. And that brings us to chapter 4 of creation. Creation, a doctrine of fundamental importance. It is the first means by which God brings his eternal plan to realization in time and space. If you look at the confession, paragraph 1 begins with, in the beginning. Now, the 1689 differs from the Westminster Confession with regards to the placement of that phrase, in the beginning. And though this seems like a a, a small and insignificant change, I submit to you that the change does carry some significance. For the authors of the 89 made this change to emphasize the eternality of God, the holiness of God, he's totally other than That God is outside of the temporal order of His creation? In other words, as I've said before, that God is totally other than. In following Scripture as an example, the authors of the confession confess from the beginning of chapter 4 God's holiness in eternality. That's why they move that phrase in the beginning to the very beginning. Continuing the confession, it says, in the beginning it pleased God. In the beginning we see the time the setting, now we see the motivation in that it pleased God. Remember, the aseity of God, God did not need to create. God was not obligated to create. He simply created. So why did he create? Because it pleased him. In principle, it is is the same reason as to why he predestined us to be adopted as his sons and daughters, as we see in Ephesians 1 and 5. It was to the pleasure of his Will. Our God is in the heavens. He does what He pleases. Amen? This is why God does what He does. This is why He created. In the beginning, it pleased God. And then the confession defines who that God is. Remember Elohim, the triune God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. All three persons were there in the beginning. That means that the Father did not create alone. The Son did not create alone. The Spirit did not create alone. The whole of Scripture teaches that creation is a work of the triune Godhead. Now to help qualify that truth, when we speak of the triune work of creation, we speak of a, a term called appropriations. Appropriations is the theological term we use to describe that certain work of creation is appropriated to a particular person within the, the Trinity. Richard Mo- Muller uh, explains that the principle Of appropriations this way Although the entire Godhead Is the source of all acts of creation There are certain acts That are appropriated To a specific person within the triune Godhead To quote Miller, he says The act is said to arise With all three persons of the one God As its source But it concludes on one of its persons As its terminus Do you follow that? Again, all the work of creation originates with all three persons of the triune Godhead, but a particular work of creation finds its culmination in and through one particular person of the triune Godhead. Take the Son, for example. Have you read John 1? Verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning, God. And all things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And in verse 14, we see the identity of who this word is. It is Christ the Son. The word became flesh, and he dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. As Hebrews 1:2 teaches us that the Son, it is the Son through whom also God made the world. But we do not have to go to the New Testament to see the triune God at work in creation. We see in the very second verse of Scripture That the Holy Spirit is at work in creation. Who is hovering over the waters? In verse 2. Just like the eagle hovers over its young in Deuteronomy 32.11, it's God the Holy Spirit. We see the Son have a job. We see the Spirit have a job. We see the Father have a job. The Father governs the work of creation. A careful reading of John 1.1-3 teaches that the Father created, but he created through the Son. Ephesians 3.9 attributes the work of creation to the Father. So we see from the very onset that creation is a work of the triune Godhead, a truth that is implicit in Genesis 1.26 with the use of the first-person plural pronouns, us and our, like we've already discussed. Therefore, just as Scripture declares that creation is a work of the triune Godhead, that the Son spoke, the Spirit hovers, and the Father governs, The confession likewise proclaims that in the beginning it pleased God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to create. For what purpose? If we continue in the confession, we see for the manifestation of the glory. Have you ever ascended the heights of Mount Everest? I haven't either, but I can imagine the glory. Have you ever gone out in the pitch of, of the night, away from all the, the, the city lights and, and the light pollution, and gotten lost in the magnificence and the brilliance of the sorry host? Have you ever stood on the shore of the ocean, the vastness of the ocean? Have ever you been, ever been on a cruise and not seen any land around you? Have you ever witnessed a sunset or a sunrise? Have you ever flown in a jet and looked to your left or right and see the peace and the tranquility of the clouds? Have you ever stood on, on a porch and watched a tornado in whose path you lie? Have you ever been experienced the wonder of childbirth, either as the mother or the father? Listen. The one who created the stars and calls each one by name is the same one who knows the very number of hairs on your head. Have you ever studied the cell or molecule of DNA and how the DNA replicates and how it's transcribed and translated into protein? Have you ever studied cellular respiration and the entire reason why we breathe oxygen is so that two tiny electrons can be dumped off and accepted by that, o- that molecule of oxygen? Listen, creation is the manifestation of God's glory. Yeah. Creation cannot contain the glory of God. The glory of God burst forth from God's creation. That's what we read in Psalm 19:1. The heavens cry out. The sorry hosts declare. That's why Romans one nineteen and twenty teaches that mankind has no excuse. It's as if Romans eleven through thirty, uh, Romans eleven thirty six, is true that for him and through him and to him are all things. To God be the glory forever. Amen. The purpose of God's creation is that He would manifest His glory. The glory of His eternal power, His wisdom, and His goodness. Think of appropriations again. The eternal power of God's glory. It speaks of the Father, the first person of the triune Godhead, the one who is seated in power in the throne of majesty in heaven, the omnipotence of God, by which God creates... Power so magnificent that there was no physical strain. Do you think of have you ever thought about that? God it it didn't cost God any energy to create. There was no blood, there was no sweat, there was no tears. There was no strain of hand, there was no labor. This is the power of God, the eternal glory of his power. It's the power of God the Father. That is the fourth force with which is accomplished that which the Son speaks into creation with the wisdom of His Word. We see the eternal glory of God's power. We see the eternal glory of God's wisdom. This speaks of the Son, the second person of the triune Godhead, the one who creates by simply speaking. He speaks creation into being with the driving force of the eternal glory of the power of the Father. He speaks creation into being. He speaks with wisdom, giving His creation a directive in order unto how it is to form, and then how it is to exist, and then how it is to operate. The earth hangs by nothing, simply because God told it to. Job 26.7. Think about the earth and the wisdom in God's creation. If the earth were any closer to the sun, what would happen? We'd burn. If the earth were any further away from the sun, what would happen? We'd freeze. If the earth were not tilted on an average of 23 and a half degrees, the seasons as we know them would drastically be different and perhaps life would not be sustainable. There's a season for everything under the sun. This is the glory of God's wisdom. And his creation is the manifestation of his eternal glory of his wisdom. Psalm 33, 6 says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. Three verses later it is written, He spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Hebrews 1, 3 says, He wasn't finished after he created, because after he created, he still upholds all things by the power of his word. This is the eternal glory of the wisdom of God that is manifest in his creation. The eternal glory of God's goodness that speaks of the Spirit the helper, the paraclete, the paracletos. God is good and he does good. Psalm 119, 68. God is the source and fountain of all that is good. In Genesis 1.31, after God completed all of his creation, he said, behold, it is very good. And you know why it's good? Because God said it was good. The Holy Spirit communicates to us to some degree what the goodness of the garden was like. Not to the full extent, but to some measure. We get to experience the glory of God's perfect creation. The one who is at work in us to willing to act according to his good purpose, this is the Holy Spirit. What grace, what mercy, what goodness of God to give us this helper. The one who is the seal and the guarantee of our inheritance. This is the eternal glory of God's goodness manifested in his creation. In all of this, God's eternal power, his wisdom, his glory, it's on display in his creation. This was his motivation to create. And out of that motivation, God created. In the beginning, it pleased God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for the manifestation of his eternal power, the for the manifestation of the glory of his eternal power, wisdom, and goodness to create or make the world and all things herein, whether visible or invisible, in the space of six days, and all very good. Now, mysteriously, there is a phrase that is not in the London Baptist Confession that is in the Westminster Confession. And that is the phrase ex nihilo, or create out of nothing. Right? Now, in... in, Dr. Renahan was was helpful in this, but he suggests perhaps the reason why the drafters of the 89 chose to take out this phrase, made out of nothing, is for their tenacity to be technically accurate. Because there are many who affirm a a two-phase creation, where God first created matter out of nothing. So there's the ex nihilo. But everything else he created out of that created matter, right? So think about how he created man out of dust, right? And so this phrase, while it's not in the confession, I think it's not in the confession, as Dr. Renahan explains, simply to be a bit more technically accurate. But I will tell you that the drafters of the confession fully affirm that God created out of nothing. He also created the, the visible and the invisible. Now, that doesn't just mean the birds and the, and the, and the bees and the, the cells and the atoms of which they are comprised, right? We can see the, the birds, we can see the bees. With our naked eye, we can't see the cells, we can't see the atoms. All of that is created, but so are the angels, those spiritual ministers. all are created beings and bow the knee to the creator even the devil lucifer who comes as an angel of light after his fall he's the enemy he's the prince of this world he is the devil but he's still the god's devil praise god all of this was created in the space of 6 days Old earth theories were vehemently refuted by most, if not all, reformers and framers of this confession. If you come across an old earther and they want to have this debate with you, just go to the scripture. Because the day is defined by morning and evening, the first day. Moving on to paragraph two. After God made all... Other creatures, he created man, male and female, with reasonable and immortal souls, rendering rendering them fit unto life to God for which they were created, being made after the image of God in knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness, having the law of God written in their hearts, and power to fulfill it, yet under a possibility of transgressing, being left to the liberty of their own will, which was subject to change. After God has made all creatures, he created man. Notice the order there. He saves the best for last. Man is the the crown jewel of God's creation. Creation culminates in man. It is to man, not the lion, that the position of vice-regent over creation is given. Man was given dominion, not the lion. Man is placed in God's paradise of creation, and man is told to rule and to reign over it and subdue the creation. The crown jewel of God's creation, is man. And how did he make them? Male and female. Now, there was a time even in my life that I would just read this and be like, okay, let's move on. But in 2023, we, we just can't do that anymore, can we? I, I'm flabbergasted at the wickedness that is out there. I, I spent two years as a teacher in a women's prison in Madison. I was contracted by the the state of Indiana to to go in and to teach these women science and math, reading, writing, and social studies, so that they could sit, study, take, and hopefully pass and earn their high school equivalency. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't uh, an employee of the Department of Corrections. I was an employee of Ivy Tech Who was subcontracted. Ivy Tech sent email after email after email about pronouns and how we are to affirm someone's self-proclaimed pronouns. Have you seen this list of pronouns? (laughs) Z? Z Z-E. What does that mean? H-I-R. Here? What does that mean? What is this? There's a list of 10 or 12 of them. It's insane. Mm-hmm. You know as well as I do, out there in that culture, even amongst some circles in, our, in American churchianity, this pronoun-affirming trend is rampant. So today, I want to declare to you my pronouns mm-hmm. from this pulpit. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. My pronouns are he, him, His. He chose me in Him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. These are my pronouns. He, Him, and His. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whosoever would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. These are my pronouns. He, Him, and His. I am not my own. But I belong to Him. He purchased me with His own righteous blood. These are my pronouns. And I want you to know I'm very comfortable with my identity as portrayed in those pronouns. I want you to know that this identity as communicated in these pronouns are my only comfort in life and in death. That I am not my own. But I belong with body and soul both in life and in death to my faithful Savior Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. And he has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. These are my pronouns. This is my identity. God created them male and female. End of story. With reasonable and mortal souls being made in the image of God, reasonable in that they had a mind and a will and understanding, they desired a disposition toward God. They could comply with God's law. The law of God was written in their hearts. This is what it means for them to be reasonable. They had the power to fulfill the law of God, but there was also the possibility that they would violate it. They were reasonable and mortal. The body would die if there was sin. The soul would live forever. We know that it's appointed once for man to die, and then comes judgment. And when Christ returns, those bodies will be reunited with those souls that had been in the intermediate state. But God created them with reasonable and mortal souls in the image of God. This isn't a corporeal or a physical image because God is spirit, but it is a moral likeness. They had knowledge. They had a, a measure of righteousness. They had holiness. They had communicable attributes of God, just not to the same extent as God. They were created in his image. Rendering fit Rendering them fit Unto that life to God For which they were created Now this phrase Does not appear in the Westminster But it does in the London Baptist Confession of Faith And it adds to the It is added to emphasize Man's purpose in life Is to glorify God That's what we read in Isaiah 43, 7 Everyone that is called by my name For for whom I have created For my glory I formed him Yes, I have made him. This is the reason God made man. With a reasonable and immortal soul in the image of God with knowledge and righteousness and holiness with the mind and a will and understanding and a desire and a disposition to satisfy and obey God. That they would live all of life to the glory of God. Now that takes us to paragraph three. Besides the law written in their hearts, they received a command not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which while they kept, they were happy in their communion with God and had dominion over the creatures. Now, that content is in the Westminster, but it's in the second paragraph of the Westminster. So here we see a third difference between the Westminster and the London Baptist Confession of Faith. We pull this content out of paragraph two and we make it its own separate paragraph. Now it is believed that the London Baptist Confession of Faith authors did this to demonstrate a distinction between a moral and a positive law. A moral law is a law that is inherently good or inherently evil. I'll give you an example. Murder. It's inherently bad, right? Theft. Inherently. That's bad. That's evil. Adultery, inherently, that's evil. That's what moral law looks like. Okay, we talked about that. Um, But now, what is a positive law? A positive law is a a law or a command that is given that is neither inherently good nor bad. Think of dietary laws. Don't eat pork. Is there anything inherently evil about eating pork? No. No. But because God told you not to eat pork, you better not eat pork. Because God said don't do it, it becomes evil. Or if God says to do it, it becomes good. This is a positive law. And this was the reason why the drafters of the confession pulled out this content out of the second paragraph and made its own standalone paragraph. For whether it's a moral or a positive law, we know that we demonstrate our love of God by obedience. Did Christ himself not write or speak in John 15, 4, if you love me, obey my commands. Now we know what happens. That as long as Adam and Eve in this perfect paradise, made in the image of God, given Wisdom and knowledge and understanding and an inclination to do what God wants them to do. As long as they were um, obedient to God, they remained in communion with God and they retained dominion over all of creation. But as was written in paragraph two, if they don't do that, then this condition was subject to change. And we know what happens, don't we? Go back to the very beginning. In the beginning, God. Totally other than. Our proper position with regards to God obligates our obedience to Him. The fact that God is totally other than, that He is holy, 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 means He can have nothing to do with sin. But glory be to God that when they do sin, he's a God of grace, of mercy, that as soon as there's that transgression, there is judgment, and there will, it will point to a final judgment where sin will be destroyed, where death will be destroyed, where the grave will be destroyed, where there will be a separation of the righteous from the wicked. But even in that transgression, in that paradise, in that that perfect circumstance, God could have ended it all. But instead, he provided an atonement. Do you remember what Adam and Eve did in, in trying to sew together fig leaves? And they tried to atone for their own sin. And God looked at their own works and said, those are filthy garments. Someone has to die when there's sin. An animal gave its life. An animal shed its blood and there was an atonement god dressed them so that he could look upon them not seeing their sin but seeing that their sin had been atoned for this obviously points us forward to christ now i've got one last thing to say here and i'm finished cuz i know i'm way over time it's it's somewhat of a pastoral address because I've seen this and it breaks my heart. It goes back to kind of something that I got to in the very beginning. I beg you, I'm not accusing you. Hear me clearly, I'm not accusing anyone. But even by numbers here, it's possible that there's at least one. That by virtue, you believe that by virtue of you coming in here and doing this, that because you hold in high regard the confession and confessionalism, because you are reformed, you're a reformed Baptist, because you subscribe to the doctrines of grace and monergistic soteriology and the five solas, because you know all these things. You might even read the Puritans and the Reformers. Don't you dare for a minute think that that is what saves you. I've seen this happen. I've experienced this as a pastor. Men who read many books by great authors, by saints of old who know all sorts of stuff, don't know Christ. And so hear me as a a brother, as a pastor, even though I'm not your pastor, lovingly admonish you to examine yourself. Do you know Christ and Him crucified? And does He know you? Throw this away for all I care. If it prevents you from knowing Christ. You were created in God's image, in His likeness, for His glory. The most glorious thing that creature can do is to repent and believe and be saved. And I want to admonish you not to consider yourself saved simply by virtue of being here. Examine yourself. And if you not be found in him, if your pronouns are not he, his, and him, repent, believe and be saved. But if you are, if you truly belong to Christ, I want you to think about the first four words of Scripture. Scripture to think about your proper position with regards to God. That He is God and you are not. That He's totally other than. He's holy. That He gives you moral laws and positive laws. You will fail to uphold them. But He has provided an atonement through one who has never failed to uphold them. You were created for His glory. So whatever it is, that you do, whether you eat or drink, all of life, live it for the glory of God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this time together where we could slow down, that we could think about even Simple truths that are clearly communicated in your word, truths that perhaps we have taken for granted. Father, we praise your name that you are a God who is relational, who is loving, who loves your people. And out of that love, you have communicated to us your word. As we study these things... Let us be mindful of the reason for which you created us. Let us live according to that reason. Let us live in such a way in this fallen, depraved, wicked generation that we go out and we shine as stars in the universe as we hold out in obedience to the word of life. That fallen man may look at us and And they may not praise us, but they they, they turn and, and they look to you and give you all the honor and glory and praise. Let us be good ambassadors of Christ as we hold out to the importance of this doctrine of creation, that we are the chief of God's creation and our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We need your help to do this. We thank you that you give us that help in the paraclete. Let us surrender to him let us keep in step with him since it's by him that we live. Let us do all things for your glory. Let us exalt Christ and Him crucified. We love you. We thank you that you first loved us. And it's in your Son's precious and holy name we pray. And all of God's people say. Amen. Yeah. Questions? Yes, sir. in the beginning, God, Sela moment. When I can remember it like it was yesterday. It was 1981. I was sitting in the barracks in my room. I had been reading Kenneth Hagin, me and by the grace of God, was putting in my hands the attributes of God by A.W. Payne. Amen. The first chapter was called The Solitariness of God. And yep. that chapter is an expansion and an exposition of those four words. I was in the vernacular a long way, and I just kept reading until I came to chapter five, The Supremacy of God, and I read this paragraph. The God of this 20th century no more resembles the Supreme Sovereign of holy writ than does the dim flickering of a candle the glory in the sun. Mm-hmm. Amen. Thank you for sharing that. As a follow-up to what Tom just observed in uh, A.W. Pink's work, in your studies and preparations uh, for your message, did you discover that, um, you know, our confession, which is an expression of 17th century English Protestantism, did you you see that, you touched on a little bit, that um, there's what we would call an old world understanding of creation Did you see uh, in your studies, like where did that come up in history? Like, is that is that in harmony with the early church? And it's obviously not in this expression of 17th century Protestantism. Uh, Did did you see that? Where did that come from? Yeah, so it's pretty relatively modern, I think, right? It is. and I I forget, brother, exactly where it is. I I know Renihan discusses that a bit. I could probably find it uh, if given the time. But are you talking about the old earth theorists? Is that what yeah. yeah. Yeah, Where did pop up in history? Yeah, I, I could probably find it in time, but I don't remember off the top of my head. What I do know is that he was vehement um, about articulating that none of the drafters of the confession, the reformers, or any such men um, subscribed to that old earth. In fact, there was one, who was it, Keach. I may have read. Um, it may have been Keach, but you'll have to fact check me on that. Um, that was walking through the, the calculation, of course, this is during the you know 16th, 17th century, and he said at that time that the vast majority agree that it was uh, 4,791 years or, or something to that effect. Okay, And he said the variance that he's only come across is about 50 years. So, yep. so this is more of like a Historical question. Um, so a lot of people claim like that the London Baptist Confession is basically a copycat version of the Westminster. Uh, is that accurate, or was? I've also heard that there was an earlier version of sixteen eighty nine. Yep. So uh, what is the date, Doug? Is it 1640, 1646? I believe so. My understanding is, and, and I'm not the historian to speak um, on this this topic, uh, but my understanding is that. Uh, the first London Baptist Confession came before even the Westminster. Um, the second London Baptist Confession is largely based upon the Westminster and the Savoy, if I if I understand correctly. Um, and I think there's even a document, was it the Baptist Catechism of 15, or maybe it's another Baptist Confession from 1596 that the first London Baptist Confession was drawn from. Um, so I don't know much about the 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 genealogy if you will of the westminster to, to know how far back we can trace its roots or if it just started in 1648 or whatever it was um but i, I think ultimately we can go back even further to 1596 to that baptist um, confession yeah and I'm, i've got the particular resources here i just don't know it off the top of my head um that is one good thing that i would uh, one reason i recommend Renahan's work to you is because, again, it's a two volume set. The first volume is an exposition of the first um, London Baptist Confession, which I myself have not studied, but I do look to do that in all my free time. Anybody else? Thank you.